And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on, and with news breaking about Ferrari's engine plans and Williams team principal Simon Roberts leaving the team, there's plenty to talk about in the world of Formula 1 off-track. And with the action on track moving back to conventional circuits, what twists and turns should we expect in the World Championship battle? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to tackle those topics and more are Gary Anderson and Mark Hughes. Well, Gary, I guess we should start off with your recent activities. You've been F1 in schooling, that's all, all finished, so what was the outcome there? Yeah, it was very good actually. You know, it was obviously difficult. It was uh, it was all over the World Wide Web um, that we did it with forty three different teams in uh, I think it was thirty six countries. So getting that all timed and having them on screen at the right time for their races and managing it all was definitely a pat on the back for uh, for F one on schools. They did a great job. Um, it's one of those sort of situations just catching up with all the COVID stuff because the the, the students have put in a lot of work over the last you know couple of years to. Um, now, but normally it's a year you have to sort of get ready for the for the uh, world championships, but this was uh, over a couple of years. But, but basically, did a very very good job. We had a lot of fun, and um, it worked out very very well. It's a a British team, uh, an Irish team won. Sorry, and um, you know it's just one of those sort of things that the more you put into it, the more you learn. It's not just about building cars; it's about the whole thing about finding the finances, doing all the research, documenting all the research, documenting everything, you know, making sure you have a, a trail of how you got to there. And, and that's, that's you get points for everything. So well done to the winners and um, well done to those that didn't win because everybody did a fantastic job. And Mark Hughes, obviously you're shortly going to head off to France and the Red Bull Ring for a, a fun triple header, which of course F1 said was never going to happen again. But good that the races are coming thick and fast and back on normal circuits, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, we've got a few triple headers uh, scheduled to see how many we get. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's the, the the jigsaw builds race by race, doesn't it, in this championship fight? And it's so when they're coming thick and fast, it's um, it, it, it's extra interesting because we're, we're building up a picture of the cars and that the drivers under pressure and stuff like that. So yeah, it's um, it's, it's it's interesting. It's got a this sort of a bit like last year, the, this stage of the season it's like a, a really quick fire uh sort of feel to it that uh, you, you've got to really keep up with and uh, it's uh, yeah I, I like it yeah it's nice because you can very quickly test your models and theories as you move on to other circuits and of course after Baku and Monaco it'd be interesting to see if some of those patterns from the street tracks carry over or don't carry over uh, as expected but let's let's move on to uh to the matters at hand Mark you wrote a piece that ran on the race.com don't forget the hyphen if you want to head there uh, which was about some bold plans for Ferrari's all-important 2022 engine not going down the split turbo route but can you explain what their more ambitious plan if anything is it's an engine less related to the current one than the alternative, let's say, with a more ambitious spec change. As far as we understand, and I, I can't be too open here about the sources, but I can be pretty sure it's very solid info. The development for the current engine was initially showing better numbers on the dyno than this more progressive design. But a breakthrough in the new design suddenly made it much more promising, and the decisions now being made, that's the direction they're going. So what's different is the intercooler, electrical efficiency. It's got a more compact layout, but most of all, uh, combustion. And there's said to be some sort of innovation in ignition, which will allow better propagation of the flame in the combustion chamber, how it spreads across the chamber, some sort of very fast ignition. But um, we don't know any more than that. 
But yes, it's still combined turbo, which next year will it'll leave them as the last to stay with that because Alpine's more or less admitted that it's going split turbo, aligning it with what Mercedes and Honda already have. And of course, the stakes are very high for the engine for next year because it'll be frozen and then that'll be set until we get to 2025. So Gary, how, how do you like the sound of that? Are you convinced? Well, there's two things there. Obviously, the combustion is very important because you know you're putting in a, a, a charge of fuel and, and air into the into the cylinder, and the bigger percentage of that you can burn, uh, the the better. It shouldn't really be a too big a problem on these engines because they're quite low revving. So you know, it's not as though you've got high high speed pistons and high speed combustion. Uh, you know, back in the days of twenty thousand RPM V10s and stuff, then it was a real problem just to get the the, uh, the fuel to burn over the top of the, uh, the complete crown of the piston. Um, and that's where whenever we had the chemical fuels, that's where they, it came in. It just could burn so much faster. Um, but anyway, obviously they found something that's making it burn better or the the, uh, the combustion they have is not working very well, so they've improved that. But the, the twin turbo thing confuses me a little bit, you know. As you mentioned there, that's the the intercooler and, you know, they've got some better mechanism for that but the only reason the intercooler is there is to, to cool down the the intake charge and when you've got you know uh, the the compressor itself sitting there at you know ambient temperature or whatever airflow going into it and it's being compressed and it increases its temperature but you've also if you don't have the split turbo you've also got it sitting beside something that's 800 degrees a thousand degrees centigrade so you know you've got to do a lot of work to keep those two heats from getting to each other and obviously by splitting the two of them having the the intake compressor on the front of the engine and the exhaust gas turbine at the back of the engine means they're a long way apart. So I don't understand the principle of not going for the um, for the split turbo because also you can have your MGUK um, MGUH um, in that shaft somewhere along the between the the turbine and the um, the compressor. And basically, if you if you can do that, then you can sort of maybe maybe play a little bit of tunes on that. You don't have to drive both of them at one time. So there's mechanisms, I'm sure, for, for spooling up the, the uh, compressor to get boost pressure so you get no lag and also leaving the exhaust gas turbine behind. So, uh, again, it's a, it's a basic principle thing, but I don't, think, I don't think I see any reason for not doing that. So I'm a bit surprised Ferrari aren't buying, it, buying into it and just getting on with it. So, Gary, what do you make of Ferrari's performance overall this year? They've they've been pretty strong midfielders, obviously a couple of pole positions on the street circuits. Perhaps the results in Monaco and Baku weren't quite what they should have been overall, but encouraging signs for them on the chassis side, certainly. Yeah, it's definitely a, a step gain in performance from last year, which they all sort of knew was going to come probably because of the, the fuel thing they had for uh, 2020, the fuel restrictions they had with the FIA. But, um, yeah, I... I think it's pretty good. I mean, the chassis itself does look quite quite handy. I mean, Leclerc is obviously someone that can wring its neck, but then that's what a racing driver should be able to do. You know, that's that's his job is to go out there and wring its neck. It looks better on on new tires and qualifying, as you say. It's uh, had two pole positions, so that's that's one thing. But it's it's also the, the two street circuits, so it's about confidence. And obviously, you know, around Monaco or Azerbaijan, you've got to not quite brush those barriers because if you brush them you can end up with three corners missing very quickly so obviously the car inspires confidence to be able to drive it like that and get it close to the walls i don't think it'll come into play so much at the big open circuits you know there's probably never been a bigger contrast from two circuses azerbaijan to uh to paul ricard and they're both pretty high speed tracks and all that sort of stuff but you know paul ricard you could use up your fuel load by driving around the uh, the runoff areas it's just huge, massive. Um, so at the end of the day, I think we'll fall back a little bit when it comes to those circuits where drivers could take more risk with a car that's not quite feeling so good um, and, and still get a lap time out of it. But I think Ferrari have sort of got on top of where they want to get to with, with this car. It's uh, Obviously, it's a, a, um, an improvement last year, so I think they're in a good development direction. Unfortunately, the... Um, the regulations for next year are changing, so start all, all start again, really, I suppose you might call it. It'll be interesting to see how they fare, as you say, not just at poorer car, but also the Red Bull ring as well. We know the car's very strong on the slow corners. It seems to have a very good mechanical platform, which which really helps it run well in Baku and, and Monaco. But this, uh, we don't quite know how it'll balance out between them and McLaren when it comes to the more con- conventional circuits. How, how do you see that, Mark? Ferrari have often qualified ahead, but they had a number of races where they were clearly slower uh, on the Sundays so 
this this is a little bit unresolved as to who is actually the third best team, and it could just be one of those things that it just swings one way or the other depending on the circuit sensitivities. Yeah, yeah, indeed, and, and depending on uh, just the, the look of the draw, I think it's, it, it is that close. I think if you're looking for trends between the two, you'd say the McLarens um, uh, better on the uh, on the straights, uh, be- got better um, high speed. Um, corner performance whereas the Ferrari is much better at um, changing directions got a nice rotation on it at low speeds um, instills a lot of confidence in the driver and um, talking to their aero chief uh, um, in in Barcelona that's that that drivability is very much part of of, of what they're going for it's very much part of their philosophy and going forward as well um, they they don't underestimate that they're not being guided just just by the the numbers in the tunnel. So yeah, it's um, I, th- I think it's quite an interesting little contest that one. Um, you know, the, the Mercedes in the back of the McLarens have got a bit more grunt, so that's that's going to help it. And I think probably on more conventional tracks where there's not the emphasis on uh, getting the instant tire temperatures. Um, my hunch is that it sort of probably favours McLaren, but let's see. Yeah, exactly. It's when it's such small margins, it can be very, very difficult to predict. But encouraging trend for both those those two teams, certainly when it comes to twenty two. Gary, would you like to gaze into the crystal ball and say which of those two you think might have the best chance of getting to the to the front come next year? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, they're both very competitive. I think what Mark says is right. The McLaren at the moment is a, is a slightly better high speed car. Um, I'm not quite sure why Daniel Ricciardo is finding just as much difficulty as, as he is in getting the car to get into the corner on the way he uses the brakes, but um, maybe they'll overcome that. But Lando Norris is sort of in the background, I think, quite happily saying, yeah, well, he has the same problems, but he's just overcome it. And uh, Well, that's a bit of driver psychology or whatever, I'm not quite sure. But um, they do seem to have a little bit of a problem there, whereas on the other hand, uh, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz are, are able to to wring the car's neck, so the car itself must be pretty pretty decent for them. So um, again, it'd be flicking a coin. I would I would sort of I'd bend towards Ferrari a little bit. I think they got more of a push on to do something, um, and their their driver lineup is it better? It's definitely not worse. I think Charles Leclerc will can say is is a pretty rapid guy from the driver point and from the team point. I think that they've just got that nudge of an advantage. To be honest. But again, it's going to be circuit to circuit. We just have to wait and see. And that is, if this little guy called Pierre Gasly and his uh, AlphaTauri doesn't upset the apple cart by getting stuck in there and taking points from some of them, because you know he's doing a very, very good job for for such a small team. Yeah, and uh, they seem to have picked up form a little bit recently. Pierre Gasly said they really need to understand exactly why they were stronger at Monaco and Baku than they expected. So again, that's another team that will get a bit of a better picture for them. They they kind of flit in and out of that that leading midfield group, depending on the on the track. So we'll obviously be wanting to be a little bit more consistent. Yeah, just coming back to that point about what the Gasly made, I, I'd like to um, put it on to, to, to Gary because he was saying um, in Baku, we really don't understand why it's gone so well because coming to these tracks, we were looking at the, the, the traits of the car and how we compared at other tracks, and we weren't expecting to, to go particularly well at these tracks. He says, but it's gone really, really well. We need to understand why. That's You normally hear people say, we need to understand why it's gone wrong. You don't very often hear them say, we need to understand why it's gone right. No, it, it, is, it is two ways, isn't it? You know, One of the things I always sort of said is, is you're, you're only as good as your competition. And if you've, if you've got it better at those type of tracks than your competition, then you'll move forward. You haven't actually done anything. It's just the others are, haven't done quite as much or, or don't suit the track quite as much. I think they've got a car that, again, it's, uh, it's reasonably confidence-inspiring. Um, and uh, that's such an important thing, I think, with the tracks. You know, Don't under, underestimate what the driver can put into a, on a straight circuit, just that little bit he can add when he's got confidence that he can brush the walls and not, not actually hit them. So... I mean, they look closely at it, I'm sure. I'm sure there's some trait in there that might help them. But I th- I would think that they'll sort of keep on pushing nearer to the front end than they have been. As I, as I had said, you know, they've been up and down a bit. I think the downs will start to diminish a little bit more and the, the ups will start to increase a little bit more. But again, it's, you know, you learn something every weekend and whether you learn that you've done something good 
or you've done something bad, it's still important to learn. Every day is a school day, you know. Yeah, and uh, Portugal and Spain were there too. Two bad weekends, relatively speaking. So the majority they've they've been pretty strong. So yeah, interesting to see how for Terry get on. Should we move on to Williams, Gary? Team principal Simon Roberts, he's off. Our understanding is that it's all part of trying to make the race team and the various design departments work more effectively together. It's part of an internal restructure. What do you make of that change? Well, you know, it must be a change in structure, obviously. I'm not surprised that um, Josh Capito coming in wants to exert his own muscle and bring in his own people um, because that's that's what happens on a lot of these occasions. Um, you know, whenever you see a, a football manager coming from somewhere else, he brings two or three of his main um Helpers, I suppose you might call it, along with them. So it's the same deal here. Um, I'm sure there was some conflict between Simon Roberts and, and Capito wanting to run in slightly different directions. But you know, it's this, it's this thing about working at the track and working at the um, at the, uh, at the back at the factory and getting them to work together. I, I've since I stopped doing F1, I've done a bit of the odd consultancy with F1 teams, just going and having a chat with them, and that's what I found at most of them. It's a blame culture where. You know, the, the, the guys at the factory blame the people running the racetrack because they didn't get the best out of the car and vice versa. You have to join up somewhere. And this flat line management structure, you know, where everybody's got equal say is, is a waste of time. And at the end of the day, there's all, only room at the top of the Christmas tree for one ferry. And that ferry has to run the roost. And it falls down through it. And, you know, you have a, a Christmas tree shaped structure and then everybody knows who they work for. It's quite simple. If you have a flat line structure, it just gets confusing. So Joss has become the uh, the ferry on the top of the Christmas tree, and it's now down to him to pull in the people below him and make sure that there's good structure there to efficiently run the operation as a race team, as a design and build team, and that there is no stone left unturned as far as responsibility is concerned. Yeah, and that is one of the things he wants to do, move away from the matrix management style structure that we obviously hear about so much in a McLaren context in the past they've moved away from that as well so it's very much Jos Capito and then the technical director Francois Xavier de Maze on it that, that's the kind of power axis at the top of the the team now yeah I mean that's I think McLaren were slightly different direction they, they had obviously they had John Barnard at the beginning and then they had Adrian Newey and they, and they had Gordon uh, Gordon Murray and all three of them you know whenever the thing was successful and they were getting some credit. Ron Dennis didn't want that, and that's why he instigated this metrics flatline management system to try to make sure there was nobody there getting a pat on the back that was bigger than his pat on the back. So at the end of the day, you can do it for two or three different reasons. You can do it because the company works better, and that's a more efficient way, which I 100% agree. Um, you know, have the Christmas tree operation. Um, and you can look at a Christmas tree, you'll see it. There's more, there's more stuff hanging down the bottom than there is up top. So... You need a lot of workers down the bottom getting everything done. And as you climb up through it, responsibility heads up to one person. So you know, you know, if you're the guy that owns the team, you know who's responsible for it. So um, at the end of the day, as I say, I think the McLaren solution, the McLaren solution for the flat line was, was a different solution to what Williams are trying to do. Um, McLaren's was to just make sure that Ron Dennis got the, the back slapping machine more than anybody else. And uh, this this one is... At Williams is more about trying to pull the company back together again. Now, the interesting thing is there does seem to be a feeling that that the race team historically at Williams are seen as the the kind of heroes, and you know, when things go right, they get all the credit, and then the design side gets the blame when things go wrong. But Mark, obviously, the race team can only do what they can do, and aerodynamic side in particular has been a weakness. But this this restructure does seem to be based more on the the race team side because obviously Simon Roberts is main function although he had the team principal title his main function was kind of as a an underlying racing director so he had responsibility for the race team so it's interesting that, that this change focuses on the bit of Williams that seems to be working reasonably well rather than the, the the weaker side which is ultimately producing a car that works well all round aerodynamically and, and mechanically yeah there's obviously been some sort of reassessment of, of priorities and I, I don't buy the story that everybody's happy in it at a, a joint decision. I'm sure, as Gary said, there's been some sort of conflict there. And um, Simon is or was one of several ex-McLaren people there. And there's a lot of ex-McLaren people there. And the, the cultures are kind of different between McLaren and traditional Williams and always have been. And now we've got another tranche from a, a third culture, you know, Volkswagens. And I suspect we're seeing sort of 
growing pains as Jost Capito brings all these um, new new attitudes and cultures together, and that can be a very painful process. You know, I've, I've, I've witnessed it myself in the workplace, and I know Gary has. Um, and it's sometimes it, it's sometimes not that anyone is wrong. It's just that some attitudes can be incompatible. And you know, William is no longer led by Frank and Patrick, and it sort of doesn't. It's sort of being cast adrift. It doesn't really have its own identity yet. It's not clear what that is, and everybody takes the cues from the the guy at the top. So as that's you know, it's in the very early stages of happening. Um, Capito's got to be left to get on with it. He, he knows what the task is, and he's, he's been given that task by the owners. And he'll he'll have his own way of going about it, and you know there'll be some bruising along the way, and I'm sure this is just the outward manifestation of some of that. I think that Josh Capito will be very good at setting up a structure for the company. I mean, without doubt, he understands how a big structure should should work and function well. It's just about filling those spots in in that structure because you can have the boxes and no name in them, but getting that name in them and getting them to buy into that structure is another another deal. And then, you know, to be honest, there are going to be some people moving around from some teams because of the budget restrictions so it is the right time to probably try to plan something but those people that might be moving around might not be the good people they might just have been working for somebody for a while um and, and i say i say good people loosely i mean everybody's a good person it's just that some people have got more um more responsibility so it's it's about getting the right people in those boxes and I, I, without doubt i'm sure that joseph Peter will set up a proper structure but filling those boxes is still going to be the task I think the good thing is that Capito has a very clear idea of what he wants to achieve and how he wants to do it and seems to be committing to trying to force Williams down that path. Now, time will tell whether that's the right approach. His record would suggest it certainly certainly can be. He's, he's a very credible person with a great track record. So interesting to see if if Williams kind of gets a, a kind of modernised and consistent culture in place because that is going to be very very important but it does sound like trying to eliminate the the blame culture is an important thing and make everything a bit more accountable and straightforward so interesting to plot how Williams gets on obviously next year is going to be a very very big year for them well Mark now we're six races into the season I thought I'd pick up on something you were debating with someone on on Twitter the other day in terms of what we've seen from the two title protagonists, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen so far. Do you think we've learned anything new about them since they've become embroiled in this combat? Plenty of swings in favour of one or the other over the course of the year, certainly. Yeah, what I was just discussing with my Dutch friend, who who obviously has he's got his Max glasses on at all times, is that uh, six races is actually a little bit early to be identifying definitive traits between the two drivers. He, Lewis has made two significant errors in the last what, five races, Imola and Baku. And Max has made a series of smaller ones. He's outside the track limits pass in Bahrain. He lost pole with track limits in Portugal. He hit the wall in Baku, which meant he didn't have his eye you know, in on the softs when qualifying began. Lewis's have been bigger. Um, but are these pressure errors? I don't know. All, all drivers make errors, all pushing the limits, but they're not all chasing titles. So... It tends to the title contenders' errors tend to get seen through that prism. Um, I think we've seen Hamilton grabbing at chances to do something special when the car's been not quite there, which was the case of both Imola and Baku. Um, I think we've seen Max not having to be quite so grabby, but then the Red Bull's been a more consistent car. The, the Merck's got this tire temperature sensitivity, and the Red Bull doesn't, so the, the tasks aren't directly comparable. So. I'd maybe put Max slightly ahead as an average so far. But for me, the standout performance between them was Hamilton and Bahrain, where he won a race he shouldn't have done. And I think it was in trying to do that again in Imola and Baku, he came a cropper. And that's that's why it's almost impossible to decouple performances from the, the drivers from the cars. The, the tasks are always slightly different. And I think we're seeing an extraordinary high level from both of them. But I don't think we can assess a full picture until the end of the season. Yeah, it's not a big enough samples out of data. One little trend that has been interesting is, curiously this season, I was looking at the numbers on this uh, the other day, mostly pole position has been decided on the first runs in Q3, which is rare. In fact, five out of six races this year, only Bahrain has it gone down to the last run for various reasons. Sometimes it's red flags, sometimes it's conditions. Imola was the slightly strange one, but it was it was Hamilton's first lap that got pole. But Verstappen, first runs in Q3 is an area I'd like to see him improve on because 
usually the first run doesn't actually count, but it's it's massively important as that banker lap. If you do have to fall back on it, you know it, it becomes very very relevant. I think I think something like fifty six percent of the the grid times from Q three have been based on uh, based on the first run times. You can tell I've been digging into this uh, quite a bit, which is an anomaly, and it won't continue that way. But it's just one little area that, again, you just wonder if there's just a slight little little weakness there. But again, we're, we're going to learn much more about the drivers as the season progresses. What what do you make of it, Gary? Obviously, Verstappen is uh, is showing well on his first shot in a in a championship fight. We can't we can't dispute that. No, he's shown very well. I mean, the, the the I think the whole competition isn't just between Verstappen and Hamilton. I think we have to look at their teammates as well to see where the the team in general is going. I suppose a little bit because it's the product that they're driving that allows them to do the job they're doing as well. And I think if you if you look at it, Mercedes are are um, throwing the ball the the, the um, baby out of the bathwater more often than Red Bull do. You know, they're making more mistakes, and we've got to look at that and say, well, there's also probably mistakes behind the scenes that we don't know about as well because of what we're seeing with the pit stop problems and various things with Mercedes is that they're, you know, they're the ones that's breaking down a little bit. Um, Bottas hasn't been at the fight really for a while, um, whereas Perez has been coming on. So I think Red Bull are sort of adapting, getting their, set their head around the, the change of regulations for this year, just that little bit better than Mercedes. Is that the high rate, low rate? Who knows? But in general, I think Red Bull are handling it a little bit better. So in the past, it was always, you know, Mercedes had the car <coughs> to go and, and, you know, be a one-two on the grid very often. And if they did that, they could lead the race away merrily. Now it's not like that. So the pressure's on the drivers and it's on the team as well. As I say, Mercedes seem to be tripping up more often than that than, than Red Bull. So that's what will happen. I mean, we saw the we saw the Imola when Hamilton slid off. You know, he was, he was doing a great job, but he made the mistake. And we saw in, in Baku with the, the brake balance thing, again, he made the mistake. So that's that's obviously falling down to the drivers a little bit more. So now we're going to get back to normal circuits, big open circuits where, you know, you can take a risk with a car that doesn't feel quite right and know you're not going to hit the wall immediately. Um, and obviously Hamilton's talent is is second to none. He just he has that ability to, to take those risks. He, he knows how he can do. He can drive into those risks and let his talent sort out the problem. The only unfortunate thing is, I think Verstappen's very similar now. You know, Verstappen's still young, coming on as a new boy, really. Um, so I think the battle's going to be great. I, I don't, I couldn't pick one at the moment. I'd like to see Verstappen because I just we need a change, but that's the only reason. The good thing is that hopefully it'll go down to the wire. And regardless of who wins, it's going to be such a memorable season. It's going to be one of the hopefully one of the great title fights. We've got half a dozen races in it, and it has been, and let's just hope it it keeps rolling. I'm, I'm quite interested, though, Mark, in the role of the number two drivers, because before Baku, you just said that Bottas was marginally the more influential of the number twos in the battle at the front. He'd been more of a relevant factor, but obviously Perez changed that massively with with what he did in in Baku. How important do you think those those number two drivers could prove to be in terms of whether it's taking points off their teammates' title rival or confounding strategies over the coming races? Oh, massively important. And it, it's uh, difficult to call which of them has um, uh, done the more uh, complete job. They've, they've, they've both had the problems. Um, as a general trade coming into the year, you would have said, you would have fancied Bottas to be a probably slightly better qualifier than Perez and Perez to be better in the race with the tyres. So quite a, quite an interesting match up there, and Perez's problem so far this season has been getting uh, qualifying behind slower cars, and so taken uh, by the time he's got past those, he's sometimes been too far back to be of any strategic value to Verstappen. Um, but there's been a couple of races where Bottas has just had this tire temperature thing; he's just not been able to be anywhere near. So. Um, yeah, I think as we get back to more conventional tracks and where this tyre trait mightn't be so uh, crucial, I think um, it, we will see a, a more direct comparison. It, it, it is interesting because Sergio is definitely making progress with, the, with his um, qualifying and he was um, he was quite a bit behind in Baku, but that was just his, his Q3 run and he only got that one run and it was just a messy lap, but 
prior to that, every every run he made, he was, you know, very close to Max for the first time all season. So I think I think he did make a breakthrough in Baku. Obviously, won the race, so it was a breakthrough anyway. But in, in just in terms of his own personal qualified performance, I think he has made some sort of breakthrough. So that combined with a Red Bull, which is, you know, really seems to have a, a, a nice, uh, more accessible operating window, perhaps. I, yeah, I, I think they might have the, the stronger all-round package. I just add there, Mark, if I could, just the, you know, the, the all-round working package. You wouldn't have said that last year, the year before about the Red Bull. So I think Sergio has brought them something. Um, also, just to add in there, I think, I think that, um, that Perez will be more of a um, more of an understanding teammate to Max. I don't think I think he will he will help Max if if it's necessary to win the world championship from himself and not because it's Red Bull team orders. And I think you could say the opposite, maybe of Bottas and Hamilton, because Bottas you know has to show that he can beat Hamilton to get his confidence back again. But I think I think Sergio Perez will will actually help Verstappen and himself if if it's necessary. Um, so you know, it depends on circumstance at any race. You know, if Hamilton's behind Verstappen and Perez is leading, then I'm sure you think that's pretty happy. Fine, um, Verstappen will still be scoring more points than Hamilton. But if it comes to a straight fight where Hamilton's got to score more points, then I think you could see him, um, you know, helping Verstappen more than Bottas would help Hamilton. And doubly interesting uh, that dynamic because neither of Perez and uh, Bottas have got contracts for the next season with their with their teams. Probably at the moment, you'd say Perez is the one who should be more confident of, of doing that. But yet to see how that plays out. But there was a little bit of mention of tyres there. So Gary, let's talk about the front tyre warm up troubles that Mercedes had in Monaco and Azerbaijan. Actually, in Monaco, it was Hamilton that struggled more than Bottas with the front tyre warm up. Mercedes reckon that Bottas's massive struggles in Baku were down to not getting the, the fronts in and then not having the confidence to attack into the corners and getting getting not getting into that virtuous circle where you, you help yourself by being attacking and therefore build that temperature. So why do you think this is proving so difficult for them? And, it, and is it going to be street circuit slash slow circuit specific? No, I don't think so. I think it's uh, every circuit. <clears throat> um, there's a problem getting the fronts to come in um, at the same sort of time as the rears. It's, you know, I keep saying this, it's not just about tyre warm-up, but um, it's about getting the tyre to become more compliant. Now, if you look at the the tyre that failed in Lance Stroll's car in in my column, you'll see all those cords holding the tread to the sidewall. If you imagine when the tyre's made, not all of those cords are under the same strain. It's a bit like um, a chain's only as strong as its weakest link, I suppose you might call it. Some of those cords will be tightly tensioned and some of them won't be. And when you go out with that tyre, it's a bit like wearing a pair of new shoes, you know. You need to wear them for a little while before they sort of break in, before they get comfortable. And all the, the stitching stretches that little bit. And the stitching in a tyre is that is those cords. So they all sort of pick up the load and, and distribute it nicely. The tyre isn't as compliant as it will be. So there's that to it. Um, also, the way Pirelli do it, you've got a maximum tyre temperature. Let's say it's 100 degrees in the front. You're allowed to heat it up to. And when the blankets come off, the tires have got to be um, above a certain at a certain pressure. So, so then the, the the teams heat the tires to that hundred degrees just to get the pressures as high high as possible, or to get the pressure up. And then they sit there and wait for a while because they let the tire go back down to about sixty or seventy to get the pressure down. It's not to do with the temperatures; about getting the pressure back down again, because the tire again because it's a bit lower pressure, is more compliant. It's like my talk about the, the structure of the tyre. You're trying to make it more compliant so you get more feel in the tyre. But the problem is if you, if you do heat the tyres up to 100 degrees, you actually theoretically cook the compound because whenever they're heat-treated, those tyres, they, they don't get heat-treated up to 100 degrees. They probably get heat-treated up to something like 60 or 70 degrees. And then the last bit of heat treatment should happen on the circuit. And if you heat the tyres to higher than they'll be on the circuit, you actually harden the compound a little bit. So you can lose grip from a soft tire. The softer the tire, you know, the, the softer tire basically is worse. So the street circuits have the softer tire. So you harden that tire so you get less grip from it as well. So it's a circle of events that, that really happens. I think you're, if it was me, I'd be looking at heating the tires up less. Yes, I would have the pressure problem because when the temp, when the blankets come out of, or when the tires come out of the blankets, the pressure has to be a minimum, a minimum pressure. So you're going to have a higher pressure for a lower temperature. But on the circuit, the, the, the tires run 
through the corner, I mean, anything from probably 70 degrees at the end of a straight, if, if that, uh, into the corner, and they'll climb up through the corner to the exit of the corner. And the front tyres will, will pick up that load, um, pick up that temperature, and the rear tyres will pick up that load, but they'll also carry the temperature further because of acceleration. So I think somebody needs, you know, if it was me, I'd be sitting down and working out that tyre cycle of temperature and trying to make sure I didn't overheat the tyre in the blanket. And the other thing is that Mercedes obviously had this problem, and back in 2019, they came up with this startling idea called DAS, dual access steering. And um, they, so they spent a year with that. And while you're spending a year with your little trick piece of kit, you're not learning about how to do it with a normal car. And that was banned for 2000 or 2021. Um, so in effect, you know, they, they're, they're starting a year behind the other teams are as to how to run the tyres, how to get the tyres up to temperature. So I'm not surprised that Mercedes have more of a problem with it than uh, than the other teams, or the Red Bull or whatever. Every team has a little bit of a moan about it, but in general, Mercedes just seem to have more of a problem, and I think that comes from spending a year with, uh, with DAS. And Mark, Mercedes have suggested that they maybe found something in, in Baku, particularly with, with what they did in FP3 and changes into qualifying, that will help them. Do you, do you think that it... It could be something that they've managed to find a solution to. Obviously, we won't know until we get to the coming races. But do you think they're, they're not necessarily confidence? Their cautious optimism is well placed. If they're saying, if they're saying we've we've seen a very promising clue, um, you know, they're not they're not stupid people. There, they're some of the most brilliant minds. So um, you'd, you'd you'd have to go with it uh, in all probability. But uh, let's let's see. Um, it, we, we're going to the sort of circuit where. Uh, it, it, there's more energy put into the tire anyway, so even if they have, uh, if they haven't fixed it, rather they, they it might not show as much here. But um, it, it's it's still a trait. I mean, even even on some of the earlier circuits, we saw them, and particularly in the wet phases at Imola, uh, we saw how they were struggling to in the early laps to to get the t- temperature in the inters. Um, so it's 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 been there all the time, and um, even. Even as Gary says, it's not it's not going to be specifically just the street tracks, but those those low energy circuits sort of obviously the, the expose the problem more more obviously. Yeah, certainly Mercedes will be very very happy to be moving on to slightly higher load circuits over the coming races. Well, Mark, we've mentioned Paul Ricard a few times. French Grand Prix this weekend, the first of the the triple header with the two races to follow. It's earned a bit of a reputation for being dull since it returned to F1 a few years ago. Any reason to expect it to be a different story this time? Obviously, how good your race is can be dictated by how close things are. So if we've got Red Bull and Mercedes closer, it could could make it for a much more interesting race, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both the previous modern era Ricard races have been in the Mercedes dominant era. So um, we're not in that one um, at the moment. So there is hope, yeah. Um, on the other hand, if, if if they if they can get this tire temperature problem solved, it might become just like another Mercedes era race. Um, recall, um, if we think back to Barcelona, which is only what uh, three races ago, um, they won that race because they had better control at the upper end of the tire temperatures than, than the Red Bull. We might see something more like that. Um, so. Yeah, it, I think as we were saying earlier on, we, we're sort of building the pieces of the jigsaw race by race, and, and this is going to be a, an, another crucial piece. Yeah, Ricard's always been a, <clears throat> a bit of a strange circuit, and it's yeah, as I say, it's very, very like Azerbaijan, but just with the walls a bit further away, a lot further away. So you know, you can run more or less. You can run a riskier level. I mean, in the, again, the curbs and the track, the track. Um, uh, Limits, I suppose, is going to come into play at Ricard, whereas Azerbaijan, the limits were fairly well defined themselves um, by being a concrete wall. So uh, all that comes into play, as I say, if, if a driver can take risks, in my book, with a car that isn't just as nicely balanced as he wants it to be, and they can adapt his style or driving to it, then I think it's an opportunity to do a, a good job with it. Uh, you know, I think any racetrack, you can look at it and say it was boring or whatever, but any racetrack is only as good as the race that was there. I personally thought Monaco this year was a good race. Nothing really happened too much, dramatically. Uh, you know, nothing was all that uh, exciting about the actual racing, but it was, a, it was a good race because we had a better competition. So at the end of the day, I think Paul Ricard can be a, can be a very good race as well. I forget the Red Bull, 
Sergio Perez has found his, his feet. Um, if Bottas gets himself back there again, um, the two Ferraris, you know, and, and a couple of others maybe just join them. Norris, Norris maybe can join them. Gasly. So there could be a, you know, it could be a very good race at a tra- at a circuit that's never that inspiring. But um, you know, that's that's the luxury of this year. I think the competition is there between teams to actually set up a good a good uh, a good race. So let's hope Ricard is one of those. Does the current Paul Ricard feel remotely like the old one? Obviously, you'd have been there in F one in the in the seventies, and I imagine you've been there many times over the years. Very very different facility, isn't it? Yeah, it is a very different facility now. I mean, I think the first time I went there, I think it was the first race that was there in 1973. Um, it was, yeah, actually, if we all got a, a prize of a bottle of Ricard. And uh, the problem was we didn't know the difference between that and a bottle of lemonade. So it went down very well, I think you might say. But yeah, I mean, going back to that race, I remember Carlos Reutemann, and um, he's not very well at the moment, but uh, he... He was driving for Brabham, and he was lying in the corner of the garage uh, on a on a few bags of compost before the race. You know, I'm sure I woke him up, was having a sleep, and got in the car, went out and did his race. I think he finished third. I'm not quite sure where he finished that, but anyway, came back in again, lay down in the compost as if he'd never been been anywhere. You know, just done a, a whatever as 200 mile race, but. Um, yeah, times have changed dramatically. So have the circuits changed dramatically. I can tell you some stories about Paul Ricard. You know, it used to be the old twin pit lane job where you had a bridge and, yeah. So, um, but it's still, you know, it, it, all, all it is, you, you drive in through the facility at any track and it's got a name above it and that's a racetrack. There's a track there that you go racing on. So it's, the, the biggest difference really is all the runoff areas have just got so massive. And I think it, Azerbaijan shows that you can have a high-speed race with concrete walls and people respect them. You can have Monaco, which is a low-speed race with concrete walls and people respect them. People will hit them, but that's life, that's racing. Whereas on tracks like Paul Ricard, you don't pay the price. You know, you don't pay the price for mistakes. You can make mistakes and get away with it. And I'm not talking about the price of being hurting yourself, but I'm talking about the price of damaging your car. So um, I wish there was more tracks like where you paid the price, basically, if you make mistakes. Yeah, Paul Ricard certainly isn't uh, isn't one of those. I do remember Roman Grosjean managed to find the wall there a few years ago, didn't he? On a on his site to run in Q three, I think, if memory serves. But uh, yeah, very very rare. Uh, Gary, home Grand Prix for Alpine, so big weekend for them. Their performance pattern this season has been quite an odd one. Some pretty good qualifying performances now and then, but the race pace has been fairly poor. Actually, what what do you make of their progress so far? Yeah, well, we've all, always talked about Alpha Tori going up and down a bit like a yo-yo, um, but Alpine's setting a new example for that, really, I suppose, this year. You know, that they, they haven't found the magic switch, I suppose you might call it. I mean, they've done lots and lots of development. They had lots of wind tunnel problems over the winter, but I don't think they've found a direction yet that's, that's going to take them somewhere, um, and that's why they're up and down. They, they don't have to identify their good bits or their bad bits. They've... Um, they're still developing, I would say, blindly, you might call it. Um, and so when you're doing that, it's just as easy to develop the bad bits a bit further and make them worse than it is to you know, make them better. So I would have thought that, and this is wrong to say this, I would have thought Fernando would have been a, more of a leader within it and the direction and been, been able to get the car to a point where it was consistent, I suppose you might call it. might be consistently slow. You want it to be consistently fast, but you get to a point where you drive it in a certain manner. And he, you know, he's got a lot of experience, but you drive it in a certain manner and you you know you need the car to be better driving in that certain manner. So you give the team data of the way you want to drive the car and the problems that's being created at that point in time. And as for Ocon, you know, any of the young drivers will go in there and adapt to the car very, very quickly. They'll drive it differently if necessary. They'll just they'll try everything possible that's in their toolbox to get a lap time out of it. And I think that's what you're seeing with the up and down. At some points in time, Ocon will will drive the car and, and pull a lap time out of it for some heroic means. And it was the same with us back, you know, we had our, with the Jordan 1998. We went from a good year in 1997. 1998, we still had Ralph Schumacher and we had Damon Hill join us. And, you know, Ralph would pull a lap out of it. Suddenly you'd be seventh quickest or whatever it was in qualifying. And you think, oh, that's okay, isn't it? But it wasn't really. You know, he just that was him just pulling a lap out of it, whereas Damon would be 15th or something. But Damon was driving the car like the the professional that I think he is. He, he was driving the car in his way, 
knowing that when the car's good, this way is quick and this way is consistent. And we missed that for a while. You know, we did latch onto it later on and made the car better. But it's so easy to miss that. So I would think Fernando needs to sort of stand up and be counted and, and read the rule book to them a little bit and say, you know, what I'm trying to do with the car is the way I need to drive this car. So now you make the car perform in this driving manner. Um, and that's whether whether it's braking into the corner, trail braking, you know, um, picky, picky apexes where you, you know, brake late and turn in, or whether you carry corner speed, all of that stuff. That, that's all very much, very important to how you develop the car, getting that data and understanding this is the car that we need to drive. This is the, the driving profile of it. Now let's see how we can um, advance the performance of it with that driving profile. It does feel like a team that isn't completely on top of getting the most from its car. I'm not sure what you make of it, Mark, but there's a few little performance trends we can see in it. It's not perhaps so strong on the slower corners, but sometimes we see very strong qualifying performances, but we always seem to see slightly iffy race pace, uh, should we say. So it it doesn't, it, probably of all the cars, it's got the most amorphous performance pattern. Would you agree with that? Or are you seeing a bit more than I am? No, I'd agree with that largely. Um, the, the, the most convincing that's looked is at Portimao and Barcelona. Um, and I'm a little bit uh, concerned for the team when they say, I think that both drivers were on message in Baku and saying, oh, it's just a, we think it's just a street circuit trade. We're not getting the tyres switched on quickly enough. And when we get back to conventional tracks, we'll be fine. We'll be back where we were. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe they will. But it, it's it's still it's still telling you something that you're not getting on top of if you have that trick, and just sort of throwing that away as a, as a relevant information and saying it's all right, we'll be fine. It doesn't sound like they're on the on top of the problem, but I mean that's that's just what the drivers were saying. It may not be what the the engineers are thinking. And it's interesting because Spain, for example, good qualifying pace, but the race pace was really actually pretty poor in Spain. So. There hasn't been a, a weekend where they've been really, really convincing. So that, that does worry me with, with that team. And obviously, there'll be lots of pressure at the French Grand Prix. I guess the positives for their Mocons had a, a pretty good season so far. Alonso's still not quite there, although showed his uh, his fighting spirit and his racing abilities in that two-lap race uh, at the end. But Gary, this thing of what what do you do if you're a team in that situation? And maybe, perhaps, perhaps if they're looking at it and they're not quite understanding the performance patterns and they are seeing if you're seeing a big difference between race pace and qualifying pace how do you how do you approach that and what would be your your kind of go-to areas for trying to trying to unlock the the, the problems well you, you know you need to sort of recognize the problems first and, that, and that, the problem is i don't think they're doing that i don't think they're stepping back and recognizing it and just keeping developing the car and firing bits onto it and hoping that it'll make the car better um you know if williams are changing their structure to get that one ferry on top of the christmas tree then um, Alpine have gone the opposite direction, haven't they? they they've, um, they're trying to have, I don't know what they've got, a multitude of people there that are responsible for everything. So that's a problem as well in my book. You know, you, you need to have somebody that's there um, leading the show in every department, obviously, but technically you need somebody there that's leading the show and that's responsible for the performance of the car. But again, just going back into it, you know, there is no magic wand. If you've got a problem, there's a reason for it, and you've got to dig deep to find that. As you say, those last two laps in Baku with Alonso was just argy-bargy laps. Um, didn't really care what the car was like because you were never on the same racing line once. Um, so it was just one of those sort of things where you just get your nose stuck in there and hope. And, and obviously Alonso still carries that ability to do that. He's always been one of the best at that. Um, so... I think you can rely on the driver performance being there, but you just need to sit back a little bit and look at what the problem is. What does the driver want from the car and where does he want it? And it's not going to be a turn of front wing. You know, there's no magic magic switch that gives you performance just because you flick it the right direction. It's all about just getting the data and the driver giving the team the information of how he wants to drive the car and then the team sitting back and trying to work out what's the best way of achieving that both development-wise and running-wise, you know. It can be done, it's just about it's a matter of time, but you have to identify the problem and not just keep blindly developing stuff in a, a direction that might not take you anywhere. 
yeah, it remains to be seen whether Alpine can get on top of that or not. Fernando Alonso still being very positive about the team, but let's see how that evolves over the season. Well, thanks very much, Gary Anderson and Mark Hughes, for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. There's there's loads to read there from Mark and Gary and uh, myself and the, and the rest of the team at the race. Uh, a new feature we'll have next week for our French Grand Prix review podcast and for our future race reviews is those who are part of our members club will be able to fire questions at us for inclusion on, on that podcast. There'll be a, a window that opens after the race where you can fire in the, the questions. If you're not signed up to our member scheme, head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen, therace.com forward slash members club or click on the members icon on the website to be able to sign up. And then we'll let you know when the window opens to ask your questions after the race. Uh, do check out some of our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s and the Race IndyCar podcast. And also have a look at our YouTube channel. Just search for The Race. We're now going to turn our attention to the French Grand Prix. Mark's going to head off on his three-week trek across Europe. And we'll be back soon to bring you everything you need to know from Paul Ricard. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.